Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. After studying French literature at Brown University in the United States, Ted Lemon ended up in Burgundy, pruning vineyards and picking grapes. He subsequently trained as a winemaker in Dijon, then worked at some of the most prestigious domains in the Cote d'Or, before returning to set up his own project called Literae in California. Articulate, passionate and opinionated, the Comte de Citron, as he's known to his friends in Burgundy, likes to trust his own intuition and is an advocate of what he calls wines of place, not process. Hi, Ted, how are you? I'm well, how are you, Tim? I'm really well, thank you. I mean, thank you for getting up early in the morning. I know you're on the West Coast. Presumably you're at the winery in Sebastopol, aren't you? I am, and it's not that early. 5 a.m. is pretty difficult, though, because this is late. <laughs> this is it's late. Morning. You've had a lion, right? It's, it's British tea time. Okay, glad to hear. And the sheep? You've put the sheep away? Because I know the sheep can get a bit noisy sometimes. The sheep have been put away. Uh, we actually had them right below my office last week. So when you and I talked, we said, gee, we better move them because they make a racket. <laughs> Well, I hope the sheep don't hold it against me, right? No, I don't think so. They were ready for more pasture. They, they thank you, Tim. And they thank me. Good. I, like to, I like to be a friend of the sheep, of sheep, I suppose. Listen, loads of stuff to talk about. I mean, you've had an unbelievably fascinating career. And I think, you know, you're one of the few winemakers who speaks amazing French and you've lived in France and has this deep understanding of Burgundy as well as what you're doing on the West Coast and you've worked in New Zealand. But I kind of wanted to start with your 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 upbringing, really, that uh, you were brought up on the East Coast, New York State. I just wonder if wine was a part of your life as, as a kid, really, when you were growing up as a teenager. Not much. Um, for my parents, they were the generation of um, cocktail drinkers on the East Coast, you know, cocktail drinking society. And um, they sort of found their way into wine probably in the late 60s, early 70s, when things like Matus Rosé came out in the United States in earthenware crock container yeah that little bottle a, right yes i remember a, i remember a three pack of suave bola for instance <laughs> so th- those were the things that that started to creep into our household yeah but it's funny i i we're pretty much the same age i'm slightly younger than you but not much and i remember matthias being the thing my parents drank as well and i think it was many you know, my parents weren't wine drinkers you know exactly the same they were a generation the first generation really to, to take a slight interest in wine. And it was brands like that that did it, I think. And in fact, that was considered advent- adventurous. At least oh, I think it was. They, they were cutting edge, right? Exactly. <laughs> they, they, they were the natural wine drinkers of their day, right? But but Jack Daniels' shirt tasted good after it. Anyway. <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, your, your dad, if I'm not mistaken, was a columnist, wasn't he, on, on the New Yorker? He was, he was a journalist, yeah. He worked as a columnist for the New, York, New Yorker. He actually wrote, Tim, the cover piece on the... Uh, 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 Beatles 1964 East Coast tour of the United States. What, so he traveled with them, did he? He traveled with them. I have a picture in my in my room of my father sitting with the four Beatles. So it's, it's, it's pretty it's pretty fun. I love that. And I read something that you wanted to to be a writer. I mean, you're a very good writer. I've read some of your stuff, but you wanted to be a novelist, didn't you? And, and you know, you were working a care home, you know, a bit, you know, Ken Kesey-like. You were working in a care home, presumably, to write at night, were you, or what? Yeah, so I had worked in, I had worked for uh, Dujac at that point. I'd spent a year apprenticing at Burgundy with 
primarily with Dujac and other states. And I just, um, uh, you know, there were no jobs for Americans, obviously, there. This is a very, very different time in Burgundy, as you are well aware. Um, and uh, so I felt like, well, I've done this now. Do I really want to stay in the wine business? And I thought to myself, well, I'll, I'll give a go at writing the great American novel. And uh, I failed, which I'm happy to admit. And it probably worked out the best for everybody. <laughs> Did you finish it? Oh, no. No. I would, no, I realized I didn't have that, that ability. But it was fun. Yeah. I mean, you, you need a particular mindset that you've like got to be prepared to sit there on your own all day long. It's way worse than being a journalist, you know. It is, and I would imagine that the, the, there's a terrible tendency to fall into foolish romantic uh, ideas and, and concepts, and I realized I had that tendency, so yeah. I had to get out. I mean, I studied French literature at university, you did too, you were at Brown, and like you, I was a little bit obsessed with, with, with Proust. Um, was it during your year abroad as part of your degree that you began to see a sort of possible future as a winemaker? Because you, you were in the Loire Valley, weren't you? No, I was actually back in Burgundy. Well, I was in Burgundy. So, so the um, the sequence of events was I was fortunate enough to live in France as a teenager. So mm. during uh, my junior year in high school, I lived in Rennes in Brittany, mm. no relation to wine, obviously, but just fell in love with all things French and became, uh, became a Francophile, mm. wanted to go back in, in college. And so I went back for a year to the University of Dijon, because that's what it was. That was not the university, and uh, studied just liberal arts and French literature, and took a wine appreciation class from the guy who ran the office of tourism in Dijon. And at the end of this thing, he said to me, "Gee, you seem awfully interested. If you ever want to do uh, work in the vineyards for a harvest or something, you know, for a year, or whatever, give me a shout." And so, with my terribly valuable French literature degree, <laughs> I know how you feel. Yes, right. look where we ended up. May that be a warning to everyone listening. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I didn't want to teach or translate, and so I said, uh, "Look, I, 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 why not? It's a wonderful experience, even if I never do anything with it." And so that's what got me going was this this little wine appreciation class. And then you went back and worked in vineyards, didn't you? I mean, starting that's right at, at, at the bottom, as it were, really. Exactly. I mean, where did you work? Because you had some amazing names on there. So, so I, um, the one thing that was not um, good fortune between the time he had made this offer and my actually arriving was that Francois Mitterrand was elected the first uh, socialist president of France in a long time and uh, on a full employment for the French platform. Uh, so no one, the, the right was hiding all their money under the mattresses and exporting it and freaking out and... Uh, uh, no one wanted to hire anyone who was a foreigner, so the, the circumstances were really poor, right? It was mm. not, the timing was not great, and we kept striking out in all the contacts. And finally, my, my friend Jean-Michel Lafont said, look, why don't you call um, Jacques Sess at Domaine du Jacques? His wife's American. Maybe I don't know them, but maybe they'll know what happens to Americans in Burgundy, <laughs> literally, as if they disappeared in some sort of black hole or something. <laughs> And never returned. I don't know, but anyway. Uh, so I I went to the phone booth and put my my little francs at that time in the phone booth. It prayed like hell, and uh, was fortunate enough, fortunate enough to get Roz Sess on the phone. I spoke only French with her to make sure she understood I was fluent. And uh, she said, "Well, as a matter of fact, yes, we could use somebody. Why don't you come down and have a chat?" So I ended up at Dujac for eight months. And then Jacques uh, really pointed me in the right direction, said, listen, you should work elsewhere, just even for a month to see what's going on. 
So off I went to Domaine Humier. Uh, Christophe was in the army, so I worked for his father. I worked for Bruno Claire, who's, I can't remember how many years old Bruno Claire's personal estate was at that point, but it was young. So that was great to see that. Uh, I worked for Domaine Pahal and Pomand, and then I worked for Aubert de Villard and Fuso. So those are pretty, pretty, it's a pretty good lineup, isn't it? I mean, for a, for a young kid from the States, you know, without much experience of wine, really. Yeah, that's what you call dumb luck. <laughs> Definitely a lot of, lot of dumb luck. I mean, talking of which, you know, you then got a job running Domain Rouleau, I mean, one of the most prestigious estates in Meursault. How did that come about? So I had I had returned to the States. I was going to, to write my, I attempted to write novel. my novel and failed. And, and so I said, well, back to the wine business you'd go. And uh, I hooked up with uh, um, uh, uh, Calera uh, because- with Josh Jensen, right? Josh Jensen was a very good friend of Jacques. And so I hooked up and did the hard 82 harvest of Calera and got a phone call at the end of harvest saying Guy Rouleau has passed away. Jean-Marc's still acting full-time in Paris. They don't know what they don't know what they want to do. They're looking for somebody, at least in an interim situation, to help them out. And I said, Well, you, you talked to the right guy. <laughs> and you were what, 25? I was I think I was 23. Jesus, I mean, were, were you crapping yourself? You're thinking, Christ, I'm making I'm making Rouleau. No, I was I was too excited to do that. There's no way. No. Uh-uh. I wonder, looking back, you know, were those years in Burgundy as, as formative as they must have seemed at the time? And when you look back on them, do they still seem special to you? Yeah, of course they do. There's a couple of things that stand out to me, um, Jim. From when people ask the inevitable question of what did you learn or what did yeah. you take away, I, I really think the, the most important thing is the philosophy on wine. Um, the French are the masters of the philosophy of fine wine, the intergenerational philosophy, what it takes to survive and thrive over generations um, uh, in that business. And so that that was enormous. Um, obviously, the sense of terroir, I liken it to um, uh, different different. Uh, ethnic cuisines to me. I'm not a, I'm not a great cook. I'm okay. But um, in the sense that how do you cook Chinese food if you've never tasted it? Hmm. I mean, you know, if someone gives you a list of ingredients, you don't really have the sense of touch for it and you've never tasted anything that's like it. So um, I think that's one of the great benefits of working in a terroir driven region, whether it's the Loire or especially Burgundy or, or what have you, uh, that you, that you begin to understand that and you, you admire it and it, it almost becomes the notion of going against it almost becomes difficult almost impossible unthinkable really. unthinkable thank you yeah. because you're just yeah. so you're so entrenched and you admire it so hmm. i mean the differences are real as you hmm. as we all know not that you and i can pick them out blind in any given tasting but when we taste within a house which i think is really the critical place hmm. when you taste at doge du or Lumiere yes. or Pahal or whatever, you really see the vineyard differences because the house style is no longer, uh, no longer matters. Whereas if you and I line up, you know, 20 Claude La Roches, if we were that lucky, uh, if there are that many. If uh, only. Yeah, yeah, if only. Um, that's different because you have so many outlying winemaking styles. So, yeah. so picking out the commonality is more difficult. Makes sense. And you were known as Le Comte de Citron, yeah, the lemon count. I, I get the lemon bit. But why yes. the Comte? Why, why were you a Count? I have no, you'd have to ask Jacques that's why that happened. I don't know why I was called the Count de Citron. Maybe because I, I didn't have any nobility and I needed some. So there you go. 
Reading what you've written about that time, I mean, you're very critical of what you call the sort of slavish admiration that's accorded to some old world wine regions, not just Burgundy. Do, yeah. do you think that, that does that does that sort of slavish admiration still apply? Is there a bit of what Australians call the cultural cringe where people think, oh, we can't be as good as them? I, I think there is in some ways. I mean, wine is a luxury product, and, and as such, or expensive wine is a luxury product, and, and as such, um, it's subject to trends and fads and snobbism, just, just like anything else, just like Prada fancy handbag and everything else. Um, so inevitably, that which is least available becomes the most desired. The current great example is that gentleman in Bordeaux who just uh, gets fancy tasting in London, where he's got these few wines. I can't remember his name probably now. Who uh, says he's reconstituting Bordeaux as it used to be, and it's you know his wine is thirty thousand dollars bottle. Yeah, yeah. God bless. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love you, and I, I admire your interest. Uh, um, the price seems a little bit excessive. Really should say. So I, I think I think that there is, I think what happened, Tim, is that the explosion of the riper, richer, modern style of wine. Uh, you know, the blame for that was laid at the at the feet of American media critics, whatever, mm -hmm. which you know is, is certainly deserved to a certain extent. But I, I think it it certainly was true that that really took off in parts of Europe. In, in a dramatic way, mm -hmm. um, in which wines became richer, riper, and more real, etc. So this idea that somehow the Americans are the great evil of this, or the Australians, is, is just preposterous because there were mm -hmm. plenty of people in Europe that wanted to make money. Well, and, and still are doing making those styles of wine. And that's fine. I, I, again, if you're if you're listening and that's what you love, God bless you. I don't mean to mm -hmm. um, to denigrate that. Everyone's palate is 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 their own. I'm just saying that. There's a tendency. There was a tendency at that time when, when I, I wrote the piece that you read mm. to blame the Americans for all of it. That's just mm. silly. Yeah, and I think it's true. I think it, it depends on the American, as it depends on the French person or the English person or the Spaniard or whatever. I mean, everybody yeah, exactly. has different taste, really, don't they? Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, w w when you came back, you worked for a while at Chateau Voltner, didn't you, in the Napa Valley, as a, and then as a consultant to various people. Um, and then you set up Litera, I think, 1993, with ten $10,000. I mean, could you yeah. imagine doing that now? $10,000 setting up a winery in California? Man. Well, uh, just to be clear, um, it wasn't a winery at that time. It no, was exactly. buying a, a, a few a tons brand. of fruit. Right, yeah. right. Um, but I, I think that there's an advantage to having nothing in that, you know, you have everything to gain and nothing to lose. Hmm. Uh, and I, I think, I think, I mean that quite seriously. And it was really, um, I went to Napa Tim because Napa was booming in the mid eighties. Mm. I really, I said I probably won't end up here, but I'd like to see. Mm. I, yeah, I'd you like don't seem see like it. a Napa kind of guy to me. Really. But, I mean, yeah, unfair, but. well, I loved it, and I loved living it there during the time I was there because we had that last little sort of agrarian glimpse of Napa in my own mind mm. uh, in the mid eighties before things really um, got very, very fancy. But um, the, the key thing for me was to see what was going on, how people were thinking about fine wine, how they were imagining their own future. And I was very fortunate to become quite friendly with Randy Dunn and Rick Foreman. Okay. And those two people really said to me, look, you just need to start your own thing. Stop, yeah. stop sitting on the fence and just start small. And how did you find growers to work with? And you know, did you just go around 
prospecting for, for, for grapes? So you, which sites did you pick and why? So regionality was the first decision, obviously, the region. And, and really, my wife Heidi and I looked all over the West Coast um, during the winter of 92. And I came to the conclusion, Tim, unlike a lot of people, that there's no holy grail region for Pinot Noir on the West Coast. It's very fine wine being made in the Santa Rita Hills, uh, the Santa Lucia Highlands, you know, the Sonoma Coast, uh, the Mammoth Valley, et cetera, et cetera. So... To me, it was more what what region most intrigues you for the potential. Yeah. And and few people understand this, but in 1990, we knew a great deal more about the potential of Oregon than we did of the Sonoma Coast. You could mm -hmm. stand on any hillside less than 40 miles from the most famous region in America, Napa, and that where you were standing was unknown for grapes. And almost no vineyards, presumably, back then. And basically no vineyards. So as, uh, to your point, how do you find something? Uh, it was a lot of hunting and pecking. And uh, I think that, you know, if you're looking for the right material at the right site with the right forming, farming, well, usually you're going to lose one of those three, right? Mm -hmm. Something won't be right. And so very quickly you reduce down the few sites there are to a couple. And so we found... Did Hirsch exist in those days? But they had planted by then, did they? Yeah, so there was a, the earliest plantings out on the coast were 75 and 76. Hmm. Nick Bohan um, planted some stuff. There was a vineyard called Hillcrest in Occidental. Hmm. So there were a few things round about in the hills, and uh, I scoured them all and came up with the Maze Canyon site outside of Kernville, hmm. uh, and then One Acre, which was up in Anderson Valley, because for us, Anderson Valley was part of this true coastal zone. Hmm. Well, I, didn't, I didn't make the, the human... A political distinction between uh, Sonoma and Mendocino. To me, to me, the coast was a continuum. Right, it's, yeah. it's a continuum. I mean, you've developed these very close relationships, haven't you, with, with your growers? I mean, you're a big vineyard guy. Um, I just wondered what influence you've had on them, and they've changed the layout of their vineyards, you know, farming practices because of you. Because I know you still pay by the acre, don't you, rather than by the ton, which is which is quite unusual, isn't it? Right. So in 93, when we, we purchased sort of this one site that I referred to as One Acre, that was the per first modern by the acre contract in California mm. history, hence the name that we gave that site. Mm. And um, I was convinced that that was the future. Um, Tim, and I'll never forget a conversation with Lee Hudson, who has a vineyard in Napa. That we Very famous about. grower. Yeah, yeah, great grower. Um, also a friend of Jacques Sess's. And, and Lee found out I was going to do a by the acre contract, and he called me up. And he's a Texan. Very forward, very forward guy. Great guy. I, I lived with Lee for a week in his trailer when I first moved to Napa. So thank you, Lee. Uh, but Lee said, Ted, I hear you're going to do a buy the acre contract. I said, yes, Lee, that's the plan. I said, forget it. It'll never work. Uh, what was it? Consgard and I tried that one time and it was a disaster. <laughs> and, uh, but he has worked, right? He has worked. Oh, it's the dominant paradigm today yeah. in California viticulture for fine stuff. Of course it is. Yeah. You bet. I mean, it. you can describe it as taking the grower and the winemaker and putting them on the same side of the fence. Instead yeah. of standing on the other side of the fence, arguing at each other, uh, this is the key. And it was the big change with David Hirsch. So yeah. in 2000, uh, we began working with David in 94. And in 2000, Steve Kistler and I really wanted to, to get a by the acre contract going with David. And we worked very hard with David on it. We all put, put our heads down. And as soon as that contract was signed, Everything changed. It's just a the, different the relationship, relationship changed. Didn't yes, it? yes, the relationship changed because David's income stream was guaranteed, at least from yeah. a minimum perspective, and he could just relax, right? Mm -hmm. And so, if you wanted to change the pruning, sure, let's try those two rows first, see mm -hmm. how it goes, that kind of thing. Yeah. 
Want to change the trellis system? Sure. Let's take yeah. a look at it, evaluate it. So those changes were both radical, but also incremental. And in many cases, they were planting contracts. And there are many sites that we yeah. work with that were not planted, and so we specified. For they, they planted them for you, basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You've been farming biodynamically, I think, since 2001, although you may have been interested in it before that. I wonder when somebody asks you, you know, a consumer at a tasting says, how do you explain Steiner's thinking and how it applies to wine? Do you have a way of explaining it? Um, Simplistically, or you know, maybe maybe there is no rational way of explaining it. There are things that that are kind of beyond science, in a sense. Is that true? Um, <clears throat> there are things that are beyond material science. Yes, absolutely. The key to understanding the paradigm, and I always like to mention this to people, is that the paradigm is is based upon um, the the belief that the spiritual world exists, that yeah. it manifests itself in all things. If, if you don't accept that, you don't have to believe it, but again, we're talking about logic. If you don't accept that from a logical point of view, biodynamics is a pure house of cards. So, so those who practice biodynamics but whisper to you late at night, you know, Tim, that all that spiritual stuff, I don't know. Those are the people who are not being logical hmm. because none of it makes sense without the premise. Yeah. It's essential. And, and so that's the premise, obviously, you accepted early on, was it? Or did you have to be convinced? Well, I had to be convinced about the practices. I, I certainly felt, you know, I've never been a, a religious person in the sense of attending church or something like that. Although I certainly did that as a young man. But I certainly always felt a deeply that there was something greater than us out there. Hmm. Um, and so that that opening was there, and then it was a matter of me beginning to understand these practices and wrestle with well, how how do they relate to that whatever is out there. Yeah. And and I think that's a lifelong struggle. I don't think that anybody uh, that I know of is able to do that 100. Um, percent But I think it also quickly falls into dogma, and that's that's a problem. Yeah. I, I, dogma that's is a problem. I think that's very true. I mean, I, I think what you're saying. I, I often feel, and you've talked about it in, in great vineyards. I think you said you could smell a great vineyard. I think in some ways you can kind of feel a great vineyard, especially if it's a, a an old vineyard. You get a sense of the people who've who've been through it in a way. I mean, you know, it's nothing tangible, but it's just a maybe it's an atmosphere or it's something that we we can sense that we're not rationally aware. Of. I don't know. So, Tim, that's a, a great point. So, my my question or my thought thought <clears throat> question for that one is. Why, why is Romani Conti so special? Hmm. Not that we need to talk about it. Maybe you think hmm. it isn't, but let's just, yeah, it is. let's take yeah. it as the preface. <laughs> yeah. why, why is, and Lord only knows this is rare fare by air. Nobody gets to taste this darn thing anymore. But anyway, that doesn't matter. Let's just say, why is this wine so special? Hmm. The question then becomes, based on your intuition, is, well, maybe from the very beginning, right when it was planted, they knew it was special. Hmm. They could tell. Hmm. And every year it became more special. Therefore, it had more and more human love poured out upon it hmm. and more attention. And that just kept reinforcing itself. And Latash next door was really good, but hmm. it wasn't quite, quite as, as good. perfect. Yeah. And so the human focus and intentionality was there. And as you hmm. said about old vines, hmm. we don't understand what that may bring. Yeah. 
Just talk a little bit about biodiversity because it's central to the way you farm and you've written a lot about it. Do you think the wine world is moving away from these sort of monocultures, just hectares and hectares and hectares of, of mass-produced vines? Is the message getting through? I don't know. I don't think so. I think big business is big business. Mm. Um, I think it's evolving at a glacial rate, at least in the United States. Um, and I'd like to see it move much faster. But I think the one of the sort of tragedies of 20th century viticulture, Tim, is that if we look at um, any of the textbooks about vineyards from, from that period of time, you might see soil profile diagrams with pH and calcium and magnesium, all these you know, fossils, whatever it might be. There's no talk of the biology of terroir. Mm. You know, there's barely a worm in sight. And that has changed. That's improving mm. now. Um, but we completely forgot about the biology of terroir in the 20th mm. century. And, and it's a real shame. And it's to the detriment of the great wine growing regions of the world because they've become, to a certain extent, you know, biological deserts. You know, yeah, I think it was the Claude, Claude Bourguignon line, wasn't it? The, exactly. You know, the Sahara Desert had had more microbiological life in it than some of the vineyards of Burgundy. But I think that's changed, hasn't it? With a, a lot, a lot of thanks to, to biodynamics and to organics and to the new generation, really. It has begun to change, but still, most of the great wine regions in the world, you look out over them, and there's just acres and hectares, hundreds of hectares mm -hmm. of nothing but vines, nary a tree or a bush inside. Yeah, yeah let alone any sort of native vegetation or stuff like that. Really. Exactly. Let alone yeah. native stuff. Yeah. And the, the entire um, scientific, the explosion of scientific understanding regarding mycorrhiza and fungi really speaks to what we're talking about, that, mm. that we really have only the beginnings of an understanding of just how important these interspecies relationships are. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised at all if in less than 50 years, it's going to be some amazing work that says, that tells us just how foolish it is not mm. to have companion plants planted um, along with food. Mm -hmm. I think it's very true. I mean, are all of your wines single vineyard bottlings? I mean, I've lost an account of them. We do. Is it 16 in total? No, there's, um, there's, uh, there's 16 total. Of course, this happens now over almost 30 years, so it's not mm. like it was overnight. Um, but there's two blends. There's a Sonoma Buffalo, there's a Sonoma Coast mm. Pinot Noir blend. Regional blend, and then there's an Anderson Valley regional uh, blend of Pinot Noir, and then it's a little tiny Sonoma Bush. And I just wonder to what extent do you tailor your winemaking to the site? I mean, is it almost like you're coming to each site as a new winemaker, or are there certain things that you do irrespective of where the grapes come from? It's it's pretty much gone the latter direction. Uh, you know, in earlier years, I would, you know, we would use different wood for different wines. We've pretty much given that up simply because we don't want the new wood influence on the wine, so we're very careful to minimize that 20% or less. And then the winemaking is is very similar. I mean, it's all you know, classic uh, native yeast and native malolactic or spontaneous, if you prefer, and then uh, about the same time in, in wood. Uh, but the percent of whole cluster, et cetera, that'll vary by tank. And you, so it's you pretty know, low, inter down. low intervention, really, isn't it? Yeah, we get a lot of comments from interns that they're shocked at how little we do. How <laughs> little you do, how little yeah. they have to do, right? Yeah. Well, they work their buns off, but not in, not not to be adding to yeah. putting in additives. I, mean, I, I wonder if the fact that you're from an arts background, you know, studying languages and literature and those things, whether that informs your your winemaking style. I mean, whether it even maybe it informs your entire approach to wine. You know, that it's intuitive 
rather than sort of formally scientific. Is, is there anything in that? I'm sure there is, Tim, for sure. I mean, I would much rather go with the intuitive rather than the scientific because the trouble we've gotten ourselves into in our understanding of science is science is a path of knowledge. It's not true, mm. right? It's a, it's a path towards understanding. And, and, and we, we went through a period of time in, in the modern world in which people began to understand science as the truth with a capital T, but then, of mm. course, the next discovery leads you to modify that understanding. Mm. So knowing that science is a path rather than an end or a definitive statement means that you don't rely quite as much on those particular, oh, I've learned that the following phenolic path is supposed to occur, therefore yeah. I'm going to change my life. And I think you've, you've called that being obsessed with numbers, really. It's, it's a sort of, you know, what's my pH? You know, how much residual sugar have I got? What's the alcohol level? What's the percentage of new wood? Right. All that the, kind of stuff. Those things are guides. That's all they are. Mm. Um, and as you know, we often look back at some of the great vintages and they're the ones that we didn't expect. Yeah. And, and, and that's because it isn't just about numbers. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you've never made what you've called American wine on steroids. I think someone else you called it firecracker wines, which I really like this idea. It's like, a, you know, you get an explosion of color and Catherine wheels and all those things and it's gone in 30 seconds. Um, you know, that was the prevailing style, really, throughout a lot of the 90s when you started Literai. I just wonder, how did you get people to taste the wines? Was it difficult to get them in front of critics in those early days? We were fortunate that, uh, or that, that because of my time at Rouleau and, and as you mentioned, Chateau Holden, which existed then in Napa, there was a fair amount of attention being paid to those wines um, mm. anyway. And so I didn't have trouble getting people to pay attention. The question was, how do you present yourself if this isn't your, your style? And I described mm. it as being on the dock and the party boat has just left with all the money and the girls and the boys, I don't care. Claire, whoever you're attracted to, that's fine. The boat left with all the people you're attracted to. How's that? I got that right. Yeah, that sounds good. And you're still, right, okay. So you're still standing on the dock and uh, and uh, you realize that your boat is a little putt-putt over there. You know, how, how are you going to get over to the island that you want to get to? And I think that the essential thing is starting small, right? And if there are any young winemakers on the phone that are listening in, that's my suggestion. Just mm. start really modestly because then you're really you're in control of your destiny. Yeah. And then reaching out to the great songs and great restaurants of New York and San Francisco. Basically on the model that happened in, in the Burgundy in the 30s, right? Not yeah. all estates began bottling in the 30s, but the, the depression caused mm. many to do that when the negotiations mm. didn't buy. Mm. But they do. They went to Paris and said, I've got wine. You want to buy it? Here, taste it. And that's just shoe leather, really, isn't it? I mean, I mean Jean-Marie, oh, yes. Fur- well, Jean-Marie oh. Fourier told me that when he took over from his dad, and I think Parker had given the, the Domaine's wines very bad scores, he had to drive up to, to, to Belgium to stand in a supermarket and sell the Fourier wines. And he couldn't afford to stay up there. He had to drive back the same day because I'm he had sure. so little I, money. You know, I, I yeah. totally believe that. It's crazy, isn't it? Uh, listen, I want to ask you a, bit, a little bit about New Zealand because one of the other projects you were involved with, which I love, uh, is Burn Cottage in Central Otago. Um, when did you first get involved with that? And you're no longer there. I know you've retired, haven't you? Although you're old enough to retire, but um, just tell us a little bit about that project and how it came about. Sure. So in the early 2000s, an American family who was, which was in the distribution business had um, purchased this piece of land unplanted in in central Otago. They had, Mm. uh, uh, they had been, uh, they'd had agricultural interests in uh, uh, Australia 
they wanted to keep the money in the Commonwealth, so they were looking at different winery investments because of them. So the distributor function in the United States. They looked at Australia and didn't find anything particularly excited them. Really enjoyed New Zealand and Central Otago, and this opportunity yeah. came up. And they bought it on the fly, and I got a phone call from them because we, you know, they, they distributed the bitter and they're like, uh, "We bought this piece of land." They found their name is uh, Marcus and Diane Sauvage, wonderful people. And, and Marcus said, "We bought this piece of piece of land, Ted. Now what do we do?" And, <laughs> and I said, "Would you come down and look?" And I said, "Sure, I'm happy to come down and look." And, and what Marcus didn't know was that I was very close to several winemakers uh, in Central Otago. Uh, mm. Steve Davies from Doctors Flat had, and formerly Carrick, had lived mm. with Heidi and I in San Marino for a year. Mm. Uh, we had. I was very friendly with. Uh, 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 Grant Taylor of Valley, because Grant had uh, you know, been in Napa at the same time as I had. Blair Walter at Felton mm-hmm. slept on our couch when he first came <laughs> to Napa Valley. That, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And so we had a great support network. And so I went down and took a look and talked to them all about it. And they were all bumps up. And uh, I was like, okay, well, yeah, I think you can do this. And so we started to figure out a way to work together. And so I was with it for with them for almost 18 years. Yeah, uh, we planted the vineyards and then began making wine. It was just awesome. And we've got a great crew. And Claire joined us as the GM and uh, then associate winemaker, probably in about 10, 12. Mm. I can't remember now. She remembers the date, the year. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, it's just nothing but fond memories of wonderful people, uh, great wine. If you go to New Zealand and you can't have a nice time, yeah, there's something wrong with you, right? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want to ask you about something else, really. That, that I read an article you sent me that you'd written, which was fascinating, where you divide the world into wines of process and, and, and wines of place. Uh, and I think that Randall Graham has something slightly similar. He talks about vin de four, doesn't he, and, and, and vin de terroir. I just wonder, are these two things mutually exclusive or are they kind of a continuum with points along the continuum where people can can find a place, Do, you know, if, you, if you're making one of those wines of process, can you not make a terroir wine and vice versa? I, I mean, it's a continuum, obviously. It mm. was a way of juxtaposing two ways of thinking about wine. Mm. Um, and there's process involved in all winemaking, which is ultimately why natural wine is, is fictitious because it isn't natural, it's made by humans. Um, but please, folks don't get out of your chair and yell. <laughs> oh, <laughs> At least no. not at Tim. Oh, no. <laughs> this is, Tim didn't say that, I did. <laughs> um, so, uh, no, of course, there's process in everything. It's the mentality. It's the viewpoint, yeah. right, which is critical. And that's why I think I said in that, that, that piece that you can think about process as lenses on a camera. Right? Every time you add a lens or a filter, or another filter, you're getting mm. further and further away from the place mm. where it came from. And so if you really want to make terroir-driven wine, that always has to be the first question. Mm. Does this technique enhance the notion of terroir? Mm. Or does it just is it just more processed and mm. cool or make my life easier? I mean, you further differentiate the terroir wines into terroir with a capital T, and yeah. terroir with a lowercase t. Um, are they, with a capital T, does that mean that the terroir is speaking more strongly? I think so. It also means there are vintages that speak more tra- strongly mm. of it, um, and other vintages where it's not so clear. Mm. Um, and, and those of us who love terroir love the capital T vintages, but mm. that doesn't mean the lowercase T are unclear. Yeah. 
I, mean, I, I love one of the things I like about reading your stuff and also talking to you over the years is the way you emphasize the culture and, and civilization of wine rather than the, the, the technology of it. Is, is it part of your winemaking in a way and your whole approach, your ethos, if you like, that you see this broader context? I think when you take it out of the, the cultural context, it loses a lot of meaning. Hmm. I mean, it is a, it's, this is an ancient, ancient practice. This is nothing new to humans. It's been with us for a very, very long time. And, and when we reduce it to scores, I mean, when hmm. was the last time, Jim, you walked out of the symphony and said, oh, that was a 92? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so specious that, hmm. <laughs> that we all laugh at that. Um, hmm. When we reduce it to, to, to those types of things, Mm-hmm. We're removing its context and its value. We're, we're turning mm-hmm. it into a pure commodity. Mm-hmm. And I don't think those things are helpful. It may help sell wines in the supermarket or mm-hmm. whatever. And, and it does. Those things do help to sell wine. But it, 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 it devalues wine, ultimately, which is why I, I, I struggle to understand why people who are very passionate about wines, who write about wine, continue to use that sort of a scale. I just don't understand it. What scale would you use instead? Do we need a scale even? I don't know that you need a scale, but you remember the old broadband scale of five stars with parentheses? It was kind mm. of genius, you know? I mean, in his great vintage wine book, he, Michael always said, you know, well, here's three stars and then here's two in parentheses because maybe it'll get the five stars. Mm. Which was a way of saying, you know, his, his famous quote, time will tell. And mm. wine, great wine is always about time will tell. And the problem is that when we, in trade now, when we, we sell young wine, we try to put it in a box and say, this is the box that lives in, which is great mm-hmm. vintage, not a great vintage, and this moves it back. And we don't mm-hmm. allow the box to expand. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the shame. That's what's a shame. And, and if we all had more humility in it, including producers, mm-hmm. I, I think we'd benefit from it. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. And I think in a way, we, we've created this world and we all... We all live by it in, in, in many ways, don't we? Exactly. And, and when you remind people, and I'm sure you've done this mm. in, a, in a dinner party or whatever mm. for people who don't know wine well, mm. that this is supposed to be fun and mm. they're supposed to enjoy themselves <laughs> yeah. and they should relax, they love it, right? Yeah. Because they're culturally free. They don't have yeah. to abide by some silly wine rules. So you're like, oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. No, I think I think you're very true. It's very true. I, I wondered how you get away from wine. You know, I know you've got your biodynamic vegetable garden. You've got the sheep. Um, still reading French literature. Still reading Proust after all these years. I read a lot less literature now. I'm I'm actually I read more science, believe it or not, because I'm so interested in this development of the understanding of of uh, the, the subsurface world, the world mm. underground. So I spend a lot of time reading that. I'm also very interested in the evolution of human consciousness. I, I think that we we fail to see in a lot of the, at least in a lot of the American media, I don't mm. the British media as much, obviously, but the times, the challenges we're going through, Tim, which are really profound, um, reflect a moment, um, I think, when human consciousness is really changing. And I think perhaps having practiced biodynamics and understood some of the the theory and the spiritual dimension behind it, you, I feel like you can see this fairly well. Our challenges are that we no longer we no longer believe that the materialist Cartesian world is going to solve our problems because we've seen what happens, right? We've seen that we've engendered climate issues, we've got pollution issues, we've got interhuman issues, and 
really for all of the enlightenment, this, this was presented to humans, right? Materialism as the way forward. Right? This the, the material progress is spiritual progress, hmm. um, or implied that it's spiritual progress. And so the church said, as long as you focus on the material, and you don't talk about the spirit, scientists were happy. Hmm. And I think we're at a point where scientists understand uh, the importance of talking about non-material things. There's even a very famous group in, in the UK uh, called the Scientific and Medical Network, which is precisely that. It's, it's scientists who are working beyond the realm of the purely material. And so for me, that's a really interesting thing to watch. I feel very, I feel very fortunate to live in a time, despite the crises, in which we're, we're so challenged. And I think that, that it will be looked back upon as a time when human consciousness begin to evolve again. Fantastic. Thank you, Ted. It's been great to share time with you. Thanks for keeping the sheep out of the way. I hope to see you very soon in the UK or over in California, maybe in Burgundy. Who knows? You don't go back so much these days, do you? But anyway, uh, it'd be great to see you soon. Thank you so much for spending time with me uh, and for sharing your wisdom and insights into wine. Thanks so much, Tim. It's been a pleasure. What a thoughtful person Ted is, and I really like his take on biodynamics. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the journalist Max Allen author of the Andre Simon award-winning book, Intoxicating. See you then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.